Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, it's a big week for those of us that like to look up towards the sky, particularly at night, and ask the question, why, or the question, what? Well, today, we are asking the question, who? Who knows the most about space and astronomy on the radio, and who has the best voice anywhere on the radio? The answer to both of those who questions is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, one of my favorite people to talk to, someone that I'm proud to call a friend, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster, and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. He's going to help us break down some of the tremendous space news that we have encountered this week. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, good morning, Frank. Always is a privilege and honor to be here on the other side of midnight. Thank the, you. The pleasure is all mine. Let's begin with uh, the big story of disappointment, as I would characterize it this week. Last week, we were all excited that it looked like there was going to be the beginning of the Artemis One rocket launch, the SLS. Then, okay, they didn't get to do it last week because of some rocket fuel problems. And then they said, all right, we're not going to do it during the week. We're going to do it on Saturday. Everybody was tuned in Saturday to see what happened. And then Saturday, it gets scrapped. Explain to us what happened here. Why did Artemis and the SLS get scrapped, and what happens next? Well, it's interesting, Frank. Again, thanks for having me. The problem here, in a nutshell, is the lightest element in the universe on the periodic table, hydrogen, is really the source of where they're having this issue. It's not the hydrogen per se. It's a leak of hydrogen. And this is a very complicated system uh, that we're talking about with this 322-foot rocket and by the way, just for visuals, if people are wondering, gee, we've seen rockets like the Saturn V of days gone by. It was painted white. They're actually trying to save some of the fuel efficiency as the early space shuttle, the main, uh, the main, you know, the main tank, the external tank. The first versions of that and first iterations were orange, so they don't have all the paint on this. But this is we've got to remember this, folks. This is an experimental rocket. And a lot of people think they just roll this thing out there and boom, you're supposed to go up and just you know, light the candle and it's supposed to take off. Well, that's not as, that is obviously not what's happening here. They have some issues with the fueling of this as far as the hydrogen. There's a hydrogen leak on board this particular craft. Now, what it comes down to without going into super technicals is that there's this 8-inch particular area, like an 8-inch hose, and to put it in very simple terms, they've got some sort of a leak system where they might have overpressurized a line. They might have pushed maybe 60 pounds per square inch to this little hose or this main hose. And you're probably only supposed to put 20. So the big problem is you're now going to have to take all the fuel if it's not already out of there. Think about this. It's primarily fuel is liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen. So we have a thing of about five, you know, over 5 million gallons of liquid hydrogen and almost, what, a little over a million gallons of liquid oxygen. So the problematic thing here is they're going to have to go back, and what they might have to do is actually return the big you know, Artemis One rocket back to one of the largest buildings in the world, that vehicle assembly building. And remember, you have to put it on the transporter, and that takes, what, days, a couple of days. It goes four miles. And I might have said this before in our last episode, that that tractor, you know, the big crawler that the rocket is on, probably gets some of the worst gas mileage in the entire world or diesel mileage. It gets, how about this, 41 feet to the gallon. How about that? So this particular rocket has some, has some issues. And also, let's go back to the main propulsion system on this. There are four RS-25 rockets, rocket motors or engines, I should say, on the bottom, 
and two, very modified, you know, the advanced version of the solid rocket boosters. The issue has been with one of those RS-25 engines, but let's not lock, knock NASA on this one. The RS-25 engines have had 405 flights, and now on these particular four engines, they actually have a track record. So to make this quick, the one of the engines is number 2056. It's had four flights. It was also used on a shuttle that did some servicing of the Hubble, uh, on a Hubble mission for the Hubble Space Telescope to service it. Engine 2045, it's had 12 flights. It also was part of John Glenn's second return to space a long time ago, all space shuttle stuff. 2058 has had six flights, mostly shuttles, and 2060 has had three flights, and it was on the last shuttle mission. So the motors on there, there was an actual problem with, I think it was engine number three, not the numbers I gave. They called them different, you know, in the rotation. But they had an issue there where something called cryogenic cooling. So in other words, you have to make that engine cool enough so that when you fire it in the simplest way, that you don't shock the motor when you're going off and, and doing this big launch. And another quick issue here is the Saturn V, you know, the Apollo astronauts noticed something, particularly on Apollo 12, when they launched the big Saturn V moon rocket with those very efficient F-1 engines. The astronauts on board, Pete Conrad said this, and they were struck by lightning, by the way, as they were going up uh, in, in their ascent. They had a problem in a lot of these shuttles, I mean, a lot of these spacecraft, like the big Saturn rockets, had something called pogoing effect. And what's that? You had variable amounts of thrust coming off those engines. So if you were sitting in those you know, couches going to, up to the moon to orbit, you would feel this vibration like you were riding a pogo. So they have to get all this done. And the launch windows for this, Frank, are going to be, well, the next series of launch windows could be September 19th to October the 4th, October 17th through the 31st, and another one, November the 12th through the 27th. So, I don't St- Steve, explain happens. that to us for a second. Why do, would we have to wait till September 19th or October? Is that a weather-related situation? Why couldn't we say just try it tomorrow or Saturday? Why do we have to wait for those other launch windows? What changes in those windows that you referenced? One of the best questions I've ever gotten, and I'm being serious, it is due to celestial mechanics. It has a lot to do with the position of the moon so you can efficiently make this rocket move to its goal. And obviously, you don't want to use excessive amounts of fuel. This mission was supposed to be 40-plus days. And remember, there's no humans on board this. It's kind of a replicant of Apollo 8 back in 1968, when the Saturn V, by the way, was pushed with, you know, they, they did this very quickly. You know, the Saturn V was tested numerous times before, but they made a quick decision, and NASA made this decision to send three, you know, three humans to orbit the moon. But the answer is simply, Frank, is that there's dynamics, celestial mechanics. You have to have the right you know, distances, the right motions, the right efficiency of using fuel, because this particular rocket, if it had gone off on Saturday, was to go on a 37-day mission and orbit low and high, about 30,000 miles up and around above the moon, and as low as maybe three or 4,000 miles toward the you know, closest part of the lunar orbit. And then return back to Earth and land, or I should say soft land, in the ocean off the area of San Diego in the Pacific Ocean. So I don't think this is going to happen anytime soon. But then Elon Musk gets involved in this. And then the big question I'm sure that we'll get tonight or this morning from a lot of – and hopefully we will from callers – is with how come Elon has much greater success in launching rockets than NASA has had? And that's another question that really nobody can really answer right now. You know, and not to attack NASA. There's all, maybe it's a big bureaucracy. I don't know. I, I don't work for them. Maybe it's not. Maybe in all fairness to, to NASA, maybe they do have some issues with these engines. They're still good engines. But why does Elon Musk simply be able to launch rockets and do this? And he actually suggested, you know, not to go too deep into this, he actually suggested that they should change the type of fuel that they're using or partial fuel on this instead of using hydrogen, because he says since it's the lightest element in the universe and it floats away, very difficult to control under certain conditions, he believes that they should be using something in the methane area with engines. Boy, does he have a lot of experience, because what has he done, Frank? He's developed five main engines. The most popular one is the Merlin engine, which is liquid oxygen and something called a, it's an iteration of kerosene called RP-1. He's developed a motor or engine called a Kestrel, the Draco, the Super Draco, and then this new Raptor engine. So I think he's got a lot. 
He's got a lot to say on it, and he may be right. So who knows? By the way, if people do have questions, people are already starting to queue up. We will get to them as many as we can throughout the hour. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222 here with uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. So are you optimistic at this point, given what you said about the next mm-hmm. launch windows? Do you think this is something that's going to be happening within the launch windows that you just described? I think to be an optimist here, yes, I'd like to see it happen during these launch windows. But as Bill Nelson, you know, the head of NASA said, you know, we don't light the candle until it's ready to go. And he does have a good point, though, here and separating all politics and everything aside on this. He's right. When not not only was he an astronaut, too, going up on one of the shuttle missions, but they have rolled the uh, shuttles or a shuttle into the vehicle assembly building at least 20 times to get it right. So I'm hoping that they can get this right, but I don't really think they're in a rush right now. And I think that's important for people to know because Artemis is a very expensive project. And remember, in all kudos to NASA, their budget, Frank, is very tiny compared to some of the other things we see in the federal government, whether we like them or not. They're upwards of not much more than $20 billion a Mm -hmm. year in funding. So I'm hoping, just like a lot of space fans, that we do get this rocket to go Is it the best rocket that we could build? I don't know. But it does have the most power. And you got to give them credit for this. That will generate 8.8 million pounds of thrust, eclipsing the Saturn V, which had, in all, you know, people can just check this out, 7.5 million pounds of thrust from these beautiful five F1 engines that actually Jeff Bezos actually decided to dig up. Some of those rocket motors were, you know, under the ocean in the Atlantic Ocean, and he wanted to figure out how to build better rocket motors because he figured this out. A lot of the blueprints and stuff like that and the tooling is all gone from that great era of Apollo. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to get to as many calls as we can. Let me begin with John in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, guys. How are you? Good morning, John. Good uh, morning. Good night. Good morning. Uh, So... My question was, um, since the universe is expanding, mm-hmm. and that it, it would be expanding outwards, yes. so let's say there's like a, a distant like planet um, that we want to go to, if we would the trip there be the same as the trip backwards? Because wouldn't we? Is there some kind of would the whatever's propelling um, the universe mm-hmm. outwards? Uh, would it create friction? Like, say you go to a planet, it takes like a thousand years. Would it take longer to go back the other way? Would you be hitting some kind of force to slow you down? Very good question. And I really don't know. I mean, I'll give you the best science answer I can and always honest here, you know, to a fault. The reality on this, John, is that if you were to go, let's say, to the nearest star, however long it took you to get there, whether it was chemical propulsion or if you could go the speed of light, it would take you the same amount of time to go to and fro. But the problematic thing is on Earth, let's just use a simple example. If we went to Alpha Centauri today and went by light speed, four and a half, let's say, light years away, because of the whole thing that Einstein talked about, about time slowing down in space, what we would find out is if we came back, maybe the people that we knew that were, say, you know, 30, 40 years old, by the time we came back to the Earth, they may not even be around because of the differences when you travel at the speed of light. But simply speaking, if you use chemical rockets, they would obviously be the same time. There's nothing unless you got to the speed of light. Thank you, John. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Doc. Uh, a Good couple morning. questions. Number one, uh, I know I had a friend that worked on the Apollo mission. Uh, he worked oh. for Roman at the time. Yeah. And he told me that when they, when they built the module, uh, no matter what was done to it, there was an inspector there and another guy watching, another guy watching. Uh, very, very careful to make sure everything was done properly. It seems that this Artemis uh, rocket mm. is full of flaws, and I, I don't know if it's ready to go. I think it's money wasted after money. Uh, and and the, the second thing, yes. what, what about an electric rocket? I mean, the, our government has killed us with fossil fuel. Is there any development in, in making some sort of electric rockets? to Absolutely. Yes, Neil, you bring up some very good points. There actually is. Let's talk about the second part of your question first. There is development on something called xenon technology. So it's like that, without going into great detail, it's like that. If you were to look at the back end of that, like an afterburner on a jet, it has this blue glow to it. And what it's doing, it's not using chemical-type propellants. 
it's using some sort of an electric, you know, it's a change of electrons and it's a pushing of force. It has a force field in there, and just to keep it simple, that's something. But as far as going back to NASA here, this is interesting. I always wondered about this. You know, how come slide rule guys, and there were pretty much guys, and there were a few women, God bless them, who actually worked on some of the orbit solutions back in the day, and they didn't get a lot of credit. But how come, Neil? I mean, we just have to wonder. How could the guys who were using slide rules and some of the women there be able to get these rockets to work? Remember, no Saturn V rocket exploded on the launch pad. Obviously, we've had issues before. But I think we've got to be a little careful here, and we've got to give these, these guys and gals a little bit of credit here. I think they're going to get this right, because remember, as I said before, and I said that to Frank, Neil, this is still an experimental rocket, and it's NASA's way of getting us back to the moon and to Mars. So maybe what they should have is maybe a little less PR on this thing right now until they really get it right. Then open the doors and try it again. But I hope they've solved those hydrogen. Thank you, Neil. 800-848-9222. Nick is in Farmingdale. Hello, Nick. Hi there, Frank and Dr. Sky. Good morning. Um, all my life, I've been told two things about stars. Um, one is stars are just balls of fire like our sun, and obviously I know that's true. And number two is stars are all different galaxies, and they're light being reflected off the galaxies. So I want to know, are both of them true? Is one of them true? And why? Because I just want to clear this up. I've always been told these two different things. I don't know which one is true. So go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nick. And give me the second part of it again. I mean, they're all fusion reactors in the sky, obviously. And they're all different ages and they do different things. But let me get the second part of that. I didn't quite get it. When I was a lot younger, maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was told that some stars are like different galaxies and things like that. Is that true? Well, no, stars themselves are not galaxies. They're either part of galaxies, like here in the Milky Way, let's keep it very simple. We probably have, and this is a guess, nobody knows for sure. There may be 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. That's a whole galaxy because all these stars come and rotate, like we have planets that go around the sun. So stars are not galaxies, but they're individual stars. But each star is a fusion reactor at a different age of its life. As the sun burns hydrogen, Excuse me, it converts hydrogen into helium. As they get older, they lose the ability to convert hydrogen to helium, and they start using heavier metals. And then what happens later may, like people, we get a little bit wider at the equator. They right. sometimes have these little celestial earthquakes or little heart attacks. And, I, you know, not to keep it overly difficult here or overly complicated, they have arrhythmias which then the whole star can collapse. But no, individual stars are not galaxies. So there you go. Thank you, Nick. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your questions in just a moment. And as we talk about human attempts at space travel and space exploration, we are actually commemorating a pretty big anniversary this week and this month. We'll tell you what it is. We have a guy that is very knowledgeable, a guy that has one of the best voices in all of radio and the knowledge to boot. 800-848-9222. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is my guest for the hour. We'll continue with your calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's just another night And I'm staring at the moon I saw a shooting star and thought of you I sang a lullaby by the waterside, I knew if you were here, I'd sing to you. You're on the other side as the skyline splits in two. Miles away from seeing you. This is Ed Sheeran singing All of the Stars. We're talking about the stars with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, You could check out some of his work in the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. We're very lucky to have him on our show as a regular contributor, and uh, hopefully we'll be hearing a lot more from him in the near future. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer who knows a thing or two about astronomy 
and space. Steve, we've been talking all about Artemis and these missions to the moon. Uh, this will be the first time, if we're successful in going back to the moon, that we've been back there in 50 years. Remind us, why does this matter? What can we actually learn about the Earth, for instance, by going to the moon? Well, that's interesting. Let's go to the International Space Station. You know, a lot of controversy there with Russia and the politics aside. But there's been a lot of interesting things happening. And using the ISS as the best example here. And I'm not a paid participant, you know, but as part of any kind of a you know lobbying group. But just from my own research and talking to different people in the journalism world, there's been so many experiments that we've been doing to hopefully, hopefully lower the cost of different things in the medical world. You know, they're talking about new drugs and development of different procedures in the medical world. And we're learning so much about how the human body can even endure out in space and even on the Earth. But with this particular rocket, Artemis, this is fascinating stuff. I mean, to me, I'm excited. I hope you are. So are the listeners. But again, remember, their budget that they have at NASA, they're really working with a tiny little bit of money. I mean, think of the wealth that Bezos and, and you know Elon Musk have that they've created over the time. Look at the total amount of money that they have as the richest people in the world. NASA's budget would probably be what? An outing for one of those guys maybe buying, <laughs> you know, like, like what he's trying to do with Twitter, right? This is with, uh, with Musk. So the point is, what they're trying to do, and again, I, I'm 100% in support of this. Obviously, we have a lot of problems here on the planet Earth. Well, I guess the question is always this. Why can't we all just get along? And wouldn't it be great, Frank, if the golden rule ran our lives every day? But I guess that's not going to happen. But the great astrophysicist and cosmologist himself, Stephen Hawking, made that prediction. He said we need to leave this planet to move out because we need more open spaces. And, and not to go into military history, think about what the Germans did in World War II. Think about what China's trying to do to expand. I think the word was called Liebenstrom, in which they were saying open spaces. So what Stephen Hawking has been telling us since he's passed away, we keep hearing that in his computerized voice from his ALS that he suffered from and lived a long life and a very productive one, is that we need to move out into space. And the average person on the street, believe me, I talk to everybody like myself, it seems sometimes hard to even fathom this stuff. But again, we're going to go to the moon. Mm. We're going to do it. And, and I hope it's not a military type of thing, because look what China's trying to do. They're oh, trying yeah. to build a moon base and maybe even, <clears throat> I hate to say it, some sort of a military platform up not only in orbit around the Earth, but also maybe a space base uh, on the moon that could someday be what? Uh, having nuclear missiles pointed back at the Earth? I mean, come on, that's a little extreme. I, maybe I, I'm more ignorant than I realized that I was, but until this week when I started to read yes. some of the articles about Artemis and the moon, I had no idea that the moon was widely believed by experts to have formed after a collision between Earth and another rocky body, and yes. that the moon itself is a record of that history. It, it, tell us about that, if you can. W what do we know about the moon's formation and its possible collision or the, the result of, it, of the collision with the Earth? Well, great question. I mean, in grammar school, I was young, of course, at one time, too, like we all. And when we were told in school, you at least never. Way <laughs> love it. Well, way back when, that's a long time ago in a far off galaxy, they were, we were told pretty much. I went to Catholic schools most of my life. But here's the point. They were telling us even back then, well, the moon was actually birthed out of the Pacific Ocean. And I said to myself, well, I believed it because what's really there? It's a big ocean. But the real scientific side of this right now is the moon was probably a captured body in which it might have collided or probably did collide with another body. And remember, when the solar system was young, we're going back to 4.5 billion years ago, not million, billion. And remember, there's a thousand million in a billion, so that's a long time ago, that these particular objects were like maybe just big balls of, you know, uncondensed plasma. And through time, they rotated and formed into bodies. So the moon, when it actually was, you know, earlier in its, its gestation, was actually very, very, very close to the Earth. And some say it was even as close as 30,000 miles away when it was actually forming as this big blob, and then it slowly receded away. But the moon is fascinating because I was just doing an interview the other day with a guy named Don Isles. And who's Don? And I had the honor to talk with him. He was the gentleman with a team that worked at MIT at fixing and, and working on the landing solution for the Apollos. How complicated is that? But what he said to me, and it's very interesting, he said, the moon is very unique. Its gravity field is not constant. 
There's something on the moon called mascons. And Michael Collins, if he was still with us, he could have explained it better because he was the lone astronaut on Apollo 11 going around the moon. They locked on their supposed you know, course around the moon, and they were getting this oscillation going up and down, kind of like a miniature porpoising as they were going. And they found out that the moon has different densities, so it's difficult to figure how to fly around hmm. the moon. So who knows? It probably came from, to answer your question in finality, it probably came from a captured body that was hit. And then were two big blobs, let's say, to keep it simple, like they were lava, they spun together, and now we find the moon is here. And uh, it's an interesting place. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Kevin in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. By far your best guest ever. Agreed. Always, always, always look forward to hearing from you. So well, somebody, you. May have asked this in, somebody may have asked this in the past, just curious, is there any land-based telescopes? that can look on the moon today and see any man-made objects from Apollo left there? Wow, Kevin, you bring up another fascinating question. The answer to that question would be we don't have any telescope, even this large, extremely large telescope that's being built in Chile, that will have this, like, 130-foot mirror. You would need something far larger than that. And one of the problems is, since we're looking at it, like, figure, figure this way. You and I are standing and talking and I'm looking at you through a large you know, fish tank or an aquarium. And that's a little dramatic. But the air is the problematic thing where we're trying to filter out the atmosphere. So we would need a telescope of untold proportions to be able to see anything. And I've always wondered about this, gentlemen. How come or maybe could they ever point the Hubble Space Telescope at the lunar surface? And I don't know why they've never ever done that. So maybe we ought to do a little petition and say, hey, how about that? Or turn James Webb onto the moon. I'd love to see it. But we do have answers. And the answers of those you know, particular spacecraft on the moon for people that don't believe we went there. The L-Cross, no, it's actually the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is actually partially headquartered here in Arizona. We have all the images of pictures showing the descent module, the footprints, and the rover tracks. So, wow. Pretty cool stuff. Thank you, Kevin. 800-848-9222. Ben is on Roosevelt Island. Hello, Ben. Hey, greetings. Uh, so that yes. last caller Al almost like asked the same question just about I was going to ask. However, wow. what I'm curious about is, yeah, I mean, for real, because I've been when people doubt that they went to the moon, well, there has to be evidence that's there and the flag sure. is there and the rover is there and the footprints are there. But we don't have anything so far that has said, well, we can see that it's still there. So, but when they go up again, will they be able to then, from that position, take some kind of image or show the images, yeah. you know, when oh, they're yeah. up there? Absolutely. And you know, the great conspiracy thing here is very interesting, Ben. You bring up some good subject matter here. You know, we have this LRO going around, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and it's got these images of all the Apollo sites, and it's actually found other spacecraft. So I was wondering, why the heck doesn't somebody like Bezos or, uh, you know, Musk send up a robotic spacecraft, land right next to the Apollo 11 site, and show us what's right. there? That would be the coolest thing in the world. But remember, those particular objects are visible. If you look up Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, take a look at those images. They're really cool. But there, this is another interesting story that we actually did land on the moon. Apollo 12, when it descended yeah. to the surface of the moon, it landed very close to the Surveyor spacecraft. Mm. And Al Bean and, and uh, Pete Conrad, they actually had a chance to walk right down to it and pull parts off the thing. So apparently we oh. made it there to the moon with a soft lander. Why couldn't we make it there with another soft lander with two people in it? And we did. Right. And then and one, one of that last thing before, we get, before I leave. Um, sure. So also when they, they the, you know, the theory about, you know, the, the person that was taking the photographs, Mm -hmm. um, of, I guess it was Neil Armstrong that was, you know, one small step for man, one giant mm -hmm. leap for mankind. Yes. How did he get to the position that he was in to take the photographs that caused people to then, you know, question, well, who was on the moon first? Was it the guy that took the step? What, how did that happen? I don't, I don't get it. Well, the interesting part about this is there's very few photographs of Armstrong on the surface of the moon. Most of the photographs were taken of Aldrin as Armstrong took them back. But the interesting thing there is the television cameras that we had on the surface of the moon, the best pictures ever were those from Apollo 16 and 17. But I'm hoping, like everybody, Ben, that why don't we just yeah. send up a little robotic spacecraft, land there, show us what the heck is there, 
And I bet Agreed. you, Ben, there'd be a lot of people who still would believe that that's a fake, don't you think? <laughs> right. I mean, they're doing it on Mars. They can do it on the moon. Hey, Agreed. But I- well, let's all so go much. there, Frank. Uh, hey, I, I'm in. Count me in. Thank you, Ben. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, a pretty remarkable occasion that happened 45 years ago this week, yes. and that has to do with the launch of Voyager 1. Now, we're talking more, more than two generations, almost a half century ago. Remind folks what Voyager 1 was and why that was so significant in terms of a space probe and what we learned from Voyager 1. Well, it's interesting, Frank. When I was a New Yorker, of course, back in 1977, we had the blackout in the summer. I remember soon after in September, I got word, like everybody on the planet, that we launched these spacecraft toward the outer solar system. And we had Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And Voyager 1 actually was set on a course to go to a favorable alignment for Jupiter and Saturn, while Voyager 2 explored Uranus, I say it the politically correct way, and (laughs) Neptune. And what's interesting is we're celebrating the 45 years ago. It seemed like yesterday to me. And this is interesting. Voyager 1, get a look at this, 14.6 billion miles, not light years, billion miles away, takes over 14 hours. If I wanted to just call you up, let's say, on the phone and say, hi, Frank, how are you today? That's pretty instantaneous. We know that. Everybody's phone. But in order to send a command to the Voyager 1, which, by the way, had some issues in the last couple of months, something strange was interfering with its you know, communications or something on board wasn't working right. They don't know why, but it's fixed. That takes 14 hours or more just to say, turn left and point the camera, let's say, and I'm making that part up. I don't know what they were doing with it, but just to send a signal takes that long. It's traveling 38,000 miles an hour going out into the deep, dark recesses of the universe. And that's incredible. And on board, this is amazing. I had one opportunity in college to go up to Cornell University and actually get to sit there and chat with Carl Sagan. Now, that was a highlight. But I said then, I asked him, I was just this, you know, goofy little kid then sitting there saying, hey, Dr. Sagan, can you tell me about the record? That's on board the spacecraft. And what it is, there's like 55 languages that are on this recording, like a large – remember the old big laser displayer Mm -hmm. things? Sure. I love those. I I, I never got one, but I always (laughs) wanted one. They were always a little outside my price range. And then once DVD came out, they said, oh, DVD is kind of the same thing, only less expensive. Well, Frank, I'm a lucky man. I found a laser displayer. It took me months, and it actually has in it a small little – the smaller DVD version. Oh, I love that. I love and that. I love, and I'm not to do a you know sales campaign on on laser discs, but you know what? You can find them. And the coolest part about it is, I have one looking at my desk right here. I have 2010 and 2001. But you open up the thing, and it's like this whole thing. Like when you're a kid, you did this poster board thing. You got the whole storyboard of the whole movie. But on board, there's this particular image on the record that has the shape of humans, male and female. It has geometrically where the spacecraft came from. And, of course, one of the Star Trek uh, episodes, or actually movies... Right, Star Trek, uh, the motion picture. Right. We find out at the end that this big source in space that devoured everything and became almost like a brain of its own artificial intelligence was known as what? V'ger. Very interesting. Yeah, no, that was interesting. There's a lot, you know, that that movie gets panned a lot, but uh, mm-hmm. that was kind of an interesting twist that they had on that. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with Dr. Sky in a moment. We have, uh, we're going to try and squeeze in as many of your questions as, as we can. I have a number of questions about what's happening in space as well. And on the sky, we'll find out what's worth tuning into. If you have a telescope, a pair of binoculars, or just the naked eye, we'll see what's worth checking out. This is The Other Side of Mid. Night. This is Frank Moreno, and we'll continue straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Moreno.
This is Starboy, The Weekend. I'm Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. My guest for the hour is the one and only Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Um, Steve, I, I, you know, we were going over t- topics back and forth that we might want to discuss uh, throughout the course of the hour. And you, there was one subject that uh, I must have missed my radar screen, but it really did pique my interest and my curiosity. You mentioned that there's a possibility to hear the remnants of the Big Bang on your radio. What is this? Well, Frank, this is interesting. We look at in cosmology. At least astronomers and cosmologists say that the universe expanded. Now, we'll take away the word explosion some 13.77 billion years ago. And then something magical happened about 380,000 years, not millions of years, after that. What happened is the universe heated up. And it's like you took some sugar and threw it into a, you know, a skillet and you fried it up. It sticks to the, the pan, let's say. Well, this particular event was the signature that's left over from this big, big sizzle, you want to call it. It's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. Sounds complicated. It was actually discovered like in 1964 by Arno Panzias and, and Wilson down at the Bell Laboratories in Holmdale, New Jersey. They were sitting out there trying to find out, you know, how certain stars or galaxies, you know, may make some noise. And that was all radio telescope stuff. And actually working on the Telstar communication satellite, they noticed this hissing sound. So today... And not to leave your show right now, but people, when you have an opportunity, let's say, to listen to a radio station that's in between, let's say, particularly on FM, some of that static that you're hearing, you wonder where it comes from. And a lot of scientists say, and it's a pretty simple explanation, that that's the actual sizzle sound that's out there in the entire universe. What you're hearing is these hydrogen atoms that are fused this thing called, just look it up, folks, cosmic microwave background radiation. So isn't that amazing? So some of the static you hear on AM radio, of course, you'll hear a lot of stations bouncing back and forth all the time. But on FM, which is a little different way, a different modality of frequency, you're then going to be able to hear some of that sizzle in the background. Imagine that as a telltale sign that the universe still continues to send out this powerful energy which is pervasive everywhere in the universe. That's pretty neat. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Sky. Steve. Good morning. Uh, my question would be two things. One would be on the moon or Earth. What is the difference between the magnetic field and the gravitational field? And also on the lost in space, did anything ring a bell with you on that Lost in Space series with uh, Will and his robot and that, you know. Oh, I love that show. I'm sitting right here in my office. I have the full DVD set here, and I do watch it because well, we of, had the, a... of the original or the or oh, the, the reboot. Oh no, the original. Original. Oh, the original. So Billy Mumy, we've had him on the program, and we've talked so many times. But this is interesting, Joe. If we, you know, I look at that show and I say. The thing also sitting in my desk, not to do like we're doing a, you know, a, a artifact sale here. I'm looking at a model of the Jupiter 2. Now, that's one of the things that I think is so fascinating, Joe, is the technology of the Jupiter 2. So supposedly it took off uh, in, I believe it was 1997 in the fictional series, but it was powered as a nuclear type of a spacecraft. And the hard part that I really never could understand is they seem like that spacecraft is kind of small. So... They didn't have too much privacy on board there, especially when Dr. Smith was running around. But I thought the technology, Joe, to answer you in there is pretty cool to see a spacecraft like that with such high technology. And who was the overpowering ruler of that spacecraft was, of course, the robot. That was an amazing robot. And, uh, you know, going back to your point about the moon, there really isn't too much of a big difference between the magnetic field. The moon probably has very little, if any, of a magnetic field. It has a gravity field. But it's extremely small. So if you were on the moon, you've probably heard it a million times, Joe, you'd weigh one-sixth the weight that you weigh on the Earth and the astronauts in their suits. Imagine those suits were maybe two or 300 pounds. So on the moon, they had the ability to be one-sixth their weight, and lucky for them. Thank you, Joe. 800-848-9222. Dr. Sky, before we run out of time, anything in the night sky that people might be able to catch on their own upcoming, either with binoculars, a telescope, or maybe even just the naked eye? 
Well, Frank, this is the week, and I think this is the main point of this radio show, in my opinion, for this episode. This week, folks, the most magnificent, in my opinion, not only romantic moon, but also one of the most beautiful is the full harvest moon. Now, when you have clear, hopefully you'll have clear skies, Friday evening, if you look into the southeast sky, or just a little bit, maybe more toward the east, this is the moon, full moon, that is, that's closest to the autumnal equinox, simpler language, the beginning of fall, which occurs like on the 22nd. This moon, so named as the harvest moon for a reason, when we were much more of an agricultural society in the past, the moon at this time has a very shallow angle to what we call the ecliptic or the zodiac. So it rises right at the time of sunset. In some years, it's in the sky at sunset, thus giving the farmers of old days, and maybe even today, more light, thus the name to harvest crops by. And it's a fascinating sight. Don't miss it. It's also the moon right now is at its perigee position for the month. So the moon is closest to a perigee. It's not a super moon. But when you see it, it'll be 229,000 miles away. Fascinating. 800-848-9222. Leo is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank and Steve. Morning. Good morning, Leo. I have a question. Uh, I want to put on the record that this, we already spoke about it on Morano uh, show. When 100 years from now, they're going to actually do it. I have an idea. When we colonize moon, what about do out of the moon actually jail? The, the people would have no place where to run away, so we, they would not need guards. <laughs> wait, 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 uh, Leo, I just want to make sure I'm clear. Uh, you want to make moon the moon into basically like a, an intergalactic Australia, basically, a, a, a penal colony, a giant a penal, penal colony. colony? Wow. No, there would be no need for guards. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, you know they something, no Leo? to run away. Leo, you're not the first person to think about this, and I and I love you dearly. But let me say this: so many, so many, Frank, so many science fiction movies have used this concept. I believe in the movie Aliens, not Alien. There was discussion of a certain planet that the aliens, of course, hadn't the alien creatures hadn't you know populated yet. And they were using one of those craft as a penal colony transport system. So, Leo, that's interesting, but I don't know. I, I don't think I'd want to be up on a penal colony or even try to be a guard up there because, I don't know, I think we'd kind of run out of uh, things to do. Maybe that's the reason for a prison. Steve, since you mentioned science fiction and aliens, literally, I'm always a little hesitant to bring up the idea of extraterrestrials with you because you comment so much on serious science, and I don't want to take anything away from the serious scientific discussions no. that you're having by throwing alien questions at you. However, I, I read this really interesting column by Christopher Mellon, who was a, a diplomat. He was uh, not only a, a leading staffer on the uh, on a Senate committee, but he was also the uh, deputy assistant secretary of defense for intelligence. The guy is a, a reputable guy. And in his sure. free time, uh, he works to raise awareness regarding the UAP issue. He wrote such an interesting column for a website called thedebrief.org. And if people haven't seen it, I've linked to mm-hmm. it on my Facebook page. They can read it, facebook.com slash moranofan, called The Paradox of Fermi's Paradox. And basically, mm-hmm. he basically takes issue with what Enrico Fermi said in the 40s, which is if there are all these alien civilizations out there, how come none are visiting us? And right. basically, Mellon takes the uh, the approach, well, there's a lot of evidence to show sightings of UAPs. Why has the scientific community up until now been so reluctant to acknowledge the credible evidence that we have been visited by right, UAPs? Yeah. No, um, it- I don't know if you've read the article, but what's your take on that general premise? No, I have not. But Enrico Fermi, just to elaborate a little more, with all the signals that are out there that we've sent and all the so-called civilizations by Earth or, excuse me, sun-like stars, how come we've never had any contact or any signal? Well, his theory was that there was this great filter that intelligent civilizations maybe wanted to block us or maybe have been here before. But this is interesting. I mean, the UFO subject I'm open to because I had a lot of experience with a woman who had one of the most incredible experiences, the Barney and Betty Hill situation. And I knew Betty Hill very well. In college days, I visited her many times. Quick story on that is in September of 61, they claim an actual alien abduction. Big Hollywood movie was made about it. 
I was very open to her, you know, conversation of aliens from this star system called Zeta Reticuli. But, uh, Frank, this is my general consensus on this, and I may want to write a book on this, or maybe somebody's going to do it ahead of me. I believe that since we couldn't all get along on this planet, not to be Mr. Negative here in this early hour, but the problematic thing is we had maybe nuclear war, asteroid impact, climate change, whatever, that human species went underground. But AI took over, and basically in the future, the AI and the human species biologically morph together. Now, this is we're talking hundreds, maybe a thousand years in the future. I know this sounds wacky to some, but the things that you're seeing today, like these different, you know, tic tacs, my goodness, if you look at some of the evidence on there, these things are not made in China or Russia, as far as anybody can imagine. So, wouldn't it be possible if AI learned what Einstein was trying to say about trying, trying to transform the space time continuum? And maybe these objects that we're seeing are future generations of this melding together of the human species and these AI-type de- devices. They may be what's called sentient beings. Maybe what those Tic Tacs are are like a big kidney or a big liver or a big heart with intelligence that knows how to move through time and space. That's a crazy theory to some, but I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff on this that people would, would be open about. Uh, no, absolutely. You alluded to the uh, James Webb telescope mm-hmm. earlier. We've certainly been seeing a lot of interesting images from this James Webb telescope, including some images which are causing some scientists to scratch their heads. Based on what you've seen, is the James Webb telescope living up to the expectations that people had in, for it in terms of delivering new and interesting explore, exploration? and new and interesting images? Has it been disappointing at all? Has it exceeded expectations? What's your take on what we've seen from James Webb so far? Well, not to use an overly used astronomical term, I think it's done way beyond light years and expectations. Mm. And give you some of the examples, pairing back to the early days of when the universe expanded in the so-called Big Bang. And then take a look at images that are coming from a planetary system, which people can see on any evening around 10 p.m. in the southeast. The bright white thing is Jupiter. Look what it's done. It's peered into Jupiter in the infrared, and it's shown us that, a, that we knew this before. But Jupiter has an amazing system of auroras, and they're caused by the satellite Io, which all this material, since it's volcanic, helps induce this big magnetic flux. And I think it's only we're only scratching the surface, Frank, on what I think James Webb is going to do. The only disappointment, one of the mirrors, one of the sections was hit by a meteoroid, And uh, apparently they blotted it out like you would just get rid of it off a pixel that's bad on a computer. I came across an article this week that dung beetles actually may have navigated via the Milky Way. Now, um, when you think about space exploration and when you think about the Milky Way galaxy, you don't necessarily think about the the dung beetle. What are we learning about how the dung beetles use the Milky Way as a compass? Well, Frank, I was even more surprised because it's a great combination of biologic science in the insect world and also also in the astronomy world. So humans, birds, and seals use stars for navigation. But this report, which has been confirmed, says the tiny little dung beetle that rolls the dung ball and tries to do it in straight lines, (laughs) God bless the dung beetle, we're finding out that its sensory, you know, its vision can actually help orientate the movement of that little dung ball by, guess what, not the sun per se, but the actual imaging, not of individual stars, but of the Milky Way itself, which is even more fascinating because let's imagine this. In brightly lit cities, dung beetles are not going to do very well. But out in the open, where their where natural habitat is, they're able to confirm. Now, did they get inside a dung beetle's head? No. But they're saying that they put all these situations together where they mimic the sky, did like a planetarium thing, and they're confirming Mm. that the Milky Way, so amazing, a tiny little insect like that. So it's amazing that we're going to say this, and I'm sure people would agree and cheer. We're all connected, Frank, somehow, some way in this magical world and this magical universe. Absolutely. You mentioned Russia, China, and the International Space Station a few minutes ago. Obviously, we're seeing a new level of hostility, and that's putting it mildly, between the United States and Russia. What does that mean uh, for the future of joint U.S.-Russian space expeditions or space exploration? Well, the Putin will fade, just like all dictators and all people that want to do harm, no matter where they are on the planet. Look at history. But I'm hoping, being an eternal optimist, that somehow, and I'm not naive in this, 
that we can get along in space. But I think each individual's country, like China and Russia, the United States, India, they're all working on individual programs like we are with Artemis. But let's hope it doesn't get to the high ground where now already the dark side of this is. There now some satellites in space. Maybe we have them, too, that can actually go and fetch a satellite, maybe hit it with a kinetic weapon, not like a laser or a bomb, but hit it with like a large piece of metal like a missile without explosions. But I'm optimistic that in the long term, I think we're going to figure a way. At least that's what I want to hope every day, Frank, when I wake up. You know, the news is pretty, uh, pretty depressing a lot of days when we talk just politics here, and that seems to be the run of everything. But the truth of the matter is I want to be an optimist, and I think by exploring, like Stephen Hawking said, great navigators like Magellan, Columbus, and people like that, it's in our genes to explore, and that's exactly what I'm hoping that we continue to do. Did I see that you got a, a new dog and a new dog with an appropriately <laughs> celestial name? Yes, my significant other, God bless Diana. She's now hosting the dog right now, and hopefully I'll see it tomorrow. But it's a beautiful little Bichon. It's actually one of the little combination dogs. It's real, real small, but the name we both came up with, I think, is so beautiful. It's called Aurora, and Aurora is what? She's the goddess of the dawn. And we're hoping to get a male dog, too. And I'm gonna, maybe we'll get some listener suggestions on what we should call the male dog, because the little male and the little female, she's so cute. She's only four months old. And, you know, Frank, uh, when you have an animal like this, you got to potty train it. And that's what the, that's what Aurora is going through right now. Well, I would think if it's a, if you get a male, uh, he'll have to be named Borealis, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Or maybe Jupiter. That would be <laughs> uh, Steve, it is always a treat to talk with you. I'll look forward to our next exchange. Thank you for your insight. Thanks for being so generous with your time and sharing your insight with us. Always a pleasure to be on the other side of it. Absolutely. It's our pleasure to have you. Um, we're, we have a lot to get to uh, over the course of the next three hours. We're going to cover everything from butter to the 2024 presidential race. I'll give you some highlights of this gala last night. A lot to get to. In the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> 